right club. Be the right club today. Yeah. I mean, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most. Expect anything different. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the No Lang Up podcast. A, uh, I'm not going to lie, a podcast episode I did not think we would ever have. Uh, we had the opportunity uh, to speak with Jim Nance. Uh, we've obviously been very well documented in our criticisms of CBS, of golf on television. Jim was nice enough to spend well over an hour with us addressing a lot of those questions, and we had some fun as well. It wasn't just a it wasn't a raging debate, but we challenged him on a couple of things. He had great things to say about a lot of things and added a lot of color, answered a lot of questions some viewers may have on the telecast, especially with what's currently going on and their current technical setup. So uh, I'm going to get to it very quickly here. This Once we get rolling here, uh, we are going to be interruption-free. Thanks to our friends at Callaway Golf. You know them. They're makers of the Maverick Drivers, Fairways, Hybrids and Irons. Apex and Apex Pro irons, the MD5 wedges, Chrome Soft Golf Balls, Hyperlite Golf Bags, all products you've heard us talk a lot about. Those Hyperlite bags I just put in play, available in single and double strap options. They have the distance fittings, the wedgeication. Uh, we have, again, we've highlighted a lot of this, but uh, wanted to thank them for bringing this bonus episode to you this week. So without any further delay, here is Jim Nance. All right, there's many different ways we could do this. We are uh, not necessarily fans of how golf is presented on TV, in particular your network, but you're not afraid to step into the lion's den uh, with me here today, Mr. Jim Nance. Well, thanks for having me on, Chris, and I'm freely ready to answer any questions you might have about broadcasting. Well, first thing I want to... Or anything else for that matter. Oh, I know. We got a lot to cover. We got a lot to cover. Just to give the listeners a run of show, we're going to kind of hit some of the the hard-hitting stuff here up front, and then I promise it'll get uh, more fun here on the back end. Who knows? This this part might be fun as well. Maybe it's fun throughout. Exactly. Let's not say the back part's not going to be fun. Exactly. Well, I I said this to you earlier, but I would also say that, you know, I think a lot of our... I'm not just saying this because you're here, but a lot of the criticisms and critiques we have are not necessarily directed at you, so I don't want to put you in difficult spots. Uh, to speak on things that you know you're not in charge of or anything like that. But uh, first thing I want to talk about, we had some some changes in the broadcast this past week. We had a player mic'd up. There was some discussion on the air about you know trying to get more players involved in it. Maybe some confusion. Some players had thought they had volunteered. I'm wondering if you can kind of take us through the timeline of uh, what the process has been like trying to get players mic'd up. Well, first off, let me. <laughs> I'm going to steer this question toward since you're going to deal with last week, and this just seems to be the one thing that's coming out of it. Uh, I want to say this, and I, I know it's lost on most people, and they say, well, we don't care. Just give us the damn golf. But what our crew did last week, and I went into it. It was a conference call last week saying it might be the greatest challenge I've seen in my 35 years. And I was talking about the whole crew, primarily the technical and production teams. And, I mean, it was really difficult it's going to be this week it's going to be for a while until we have the ability with the safety protocols and everything to have our full manpower now that may sound like a bunch of rubbish but it's not chris i mean we had about 40 to 50 percent of our usual manpower and what does that mean what does that look like well you got videotape replay machines that are coming out of burbank you record some golf action on one hole and it's being recorded and sent back to you a thousand miles apart. Now, we have one, I think, one videotape operator on site and a number of people, again, off site. We had the graphics, the scoreboard graphics. We had, oh, I know LJ Christian was here, but I think we had more, again, graphic operators off site. 
Normally, when we do a tournament, Chris, we have what are called 10 hard cameras. Do you know what that means? Sure. Yeah, they're just the, the stationary cameras, right? They're, exactly. They're, they're the stationary cameras that are locked down like on a giant oversized tripod, and they don't move around. Usually, we have about 10, with, the, with usually 8 to 10 operators. We had four. I mean, a lot of people had to jump around. We had, I believe it was five handheld cameras. Might have been, yeah, I think it was five. One of which was dedicated solely for Shot Tracer. So I want to just say that the, the headline for me is that, you know, thanks to these people that did never get credit, for them running around in 93-degree heat on Sunday, wearing a mask, and you can't cover an entire golf course with that limited number of resources. Plus, again, you're sourcing things from literally all over the world, including New Zealand, where you had some virtual reality coming in live from New Zealand that was integrated into our show. So a nod to the people that were asked did they want to work. All of us were given the chance to either you know go out and do this or no harm, no foul, nothing would be held against you, you know, come out later. We're not going to hold it against you if you decide you don't want to work it. And everyone had to make that decision, that they want to put their health at risk, to go out there and try to do a golf broadcast and try to deliver it back to people or not. And we had some people that said no, to be honest. I was originally, by the way, on my side, I was originally going to be doing it from my home. You know, I, I'm not looking for any kudos for that. I felt like I could do the job better being there in person and getting a sense of what the scene looked like. So. Um, it was hard. Even our number uh, one audio guy running the board actually um, had some health consequences uh, after the show on Sunday. And as of this morning, he was still in the hospital in Fort Worth. It's stress-related. I won't get into anything more detailed than that. It was tough. And our crew deserves a round of applause, and myself excluded. My colleagues, uh, I'm in awe of what they did. So now the question is about miking of players. Yeah, thanks. We were trying to do some things, Chris. The right moment, right time to try to spice up the broadcast a little bit. I know you guys yeah. have always wanted more sound, right? You, I think the fans would. Don't you agree? Mm-hmm. So one way, of course, is miking the players. That's not the first time we broached it, nor anyone else. That has always been something that's been discussed, asked for, and it's just never happened. But we live in a different time. And this is a wonderful opportunity for the game to gain new fans, a bigger audience, a younger audience. Let's hear from these guys. And I think everybody, the players, the tour, gets it. We don't have a lot of live sports competition coming into people's living rooms right now. Let's do the best we can to put the best light on golf. So last week we had Ricky on Thursday wear a microphone. I think he shot 73 or 74. It didn't work out. Great for Ricky, but we were the beneficiaries of some really cool inside look at Ricky. Over the weekend, uh, we didn't have anybody. But that's going to change this week, by the way. I don't know when your podcast goes out, but from what I hear right now, I believe we have Adam Hadwin one day and Joel Damon uh, another on Thursday and Friday. And there might be more to come, which, great. It would be fabulous. Yeah, I think that's a, a fantastic development. I think one of the one of the things that was a very very noticeable change uh, from you know prior you know 
prior to the to the crisis and, and afterwards was a an effort to lay out for player caddy conversations, get those boom mics as close as possible, and really set the scene for for those golf shots. But uh, and I, I can say, I, I, technically, from a viewer perspective, for this past week, it was almost unnoticeable. I would say even unnoticeable. I thought there would be some delays between yourself and Sir Nick, and it, it, I didn't notice any of those. It, it, I honestly, as a viewer, forgot all of those things were happening behind the scenes, which I think, to your point, is a testament to the crew and everything. That it looked almost the, the same as it normally does with a, with a much yes. more dialed back crew. So, well, thanks for saying that. I, I I was saying to people because I heard from so many in the industry that we normalized it. We made it look like it was a golf tournament that could have been any other year at Colonial. But all I can tell you is when you're there in person, it's not that way. It was anything but normal. And I'm not talking, again, about the little business nuances and challenges. And I I just want to emphasize, I'm not lamenting what I had to deal with, although it was completely different and awkward. And, uh, you know, we talked about it more than enough that I was the only one in the tower. I had no one up there, uh, which is not making it anything to overemphasize, but it just... The first couple of days, I had to turn the lights on when they said they're coming on camera. I had to actually turn the <laughs> camera lights on in in the booth. So, it, you know, it's just there was a lot of little things that when you sat down, it didn't feel like any time else you've ever been going on the air. Uh, but mine was the easiest of the ones to get close to normal. And I think the show really, the, the, again, the, the technical team and our production team did an unbelievable job. And people in the business understand that. Yeah, I think you know one of the things that we've you know well documented issue with uh, with te- golf on television. I th- I want to exclude any- anything kind of currently going on from this because I think this was a topic well before well sure. before the crisis hit. Is just the volume of commercials, and we've learned a lot more understanding how the rights deals work between the networks and the PGA Tour, and and how mm-hmm. you know this is not necessarily CBS related. But I feel comfortable asking this because there was a story in 2017 you were caught on air kind of talking about the volume of commercials. So it sounds like we can at least agree on one thing. But my question- <laughs> I don't remember that, but I'm, I'm sure I did. <laughs> uh, but but go ahead and ask me well, anything you want because well, uh, you know I think I have a pretty good understanding. I know we get beat up. I'm not saying it's from you guys, but it might be from the people that are following you guys. And everybody thinks that CBS is, is doing something that the other people aren't. Well, I'm, my question related to that is, is, do you think it's something that golf fans can hold out hope for as something that will likely change in future years? Because as as I under, you know, the, the excuse, I guess I don't want to say excuse, but the reasoning we get from the tour often is, you know, this is an antiquated contract, antiquated contract. But do you see kind of the future of live sports, particularly live golf, because it's the one mm-hmm. that doesn't go to break when the, you know, when, when, when play goes to commercial, when the broadcast goes to commercial, play doesn't stop. In football, it does. In basketball, it does. And that there's just not mm-hmm. that luxury with golf. Do you foresee that changing? And again, I know this is a category that isn't, you know, where your duties lie, but for somebody with so much right. broadcasting experience, I thought you could speak on that. I can't speak to what the new contract's going to, to say as far as what's allowed. So all I can tell you right now is that the current contract, which belongs to CBS and NBC, this is my understanding. I haven't read the contract, but I'm sure it's correct. You're allowed 18 minutes of commercials per hour. Correct. That adds up to 54 minutes, okay, over three hours. And if you run let's say 10 minutes of commercials in the first hour. Well, you know, somewhere along the line, you got to make up for it because you got to get all your spots in, but it's going to be 54 minutes anyway, you slice it. So guess what? 
we run 54 minutes of commercials. Now, there are some extenuating circumstances. I know this last weekend there were, I, I don't even know how to properly term it, maybe some sales make goods or something like that, and we may have gone two or three minutes above it with the tour approval. But at the end of the year, and there will be some tournaments, by the way, where we might be 52 minutes. But the end of the year, it's going to be 54 minutes per tournament That's that we actually went away for break. And guess what? I know everybody, and I'm, I'm not saying you guys have conditioned your audience to think we're the only ones doing it. NBC is running 54 minutes worth of commercials. Right. Yep. They're and not we, running any fewer. Well. I understand that that's not really the message out there. It's CBS and all of its commercials. But maybe you guys say the same thing about NBC. So, But I, I, I'm not sensing that people feel that way. But, you know, at some point, and I again, I haven't read the new contract. That's, as you pointed out, it's not my business. Maybe it changes. I mean, I'm a viewer too, you know, and I care about the, the welfare of the sport. That's what's really important to me. I don't want people to be turned off in any capacity. Mm-hmm. If you love the game, then you're a friend of mine. Sounds like Arnold Palmer. Arnie used to say, like, uh, but I believe in that. And like you guys, I know, I know you've taken your wax at CBS, but you love the game. Right. And I, I respect that. That means a lot to me, man. We need to grow the audience. And you guys have done your part to help do that. And the question I have in relation to that is the, one of the challenges of your job is what kind of demographic do you find yourself broadcasting to? Because I think we are at least somewhat representative of a demographic of young golf fans that are are hardcore fans, right? We are watching PGA Tour live. We are, you know, streaming stuff I know, online. I know you are. And then we are, are flipping on God the television. Oh, we and, need more people like you guys. Right. We really do. It's a serious question. And I'm not even faulting you for this in any way, saying like, how do you balance as a broadcaster broadcasting to both casual fans and hardcore fans at the same time? How do you balance that? I think my job primarily is to tell the story. Now, that sounds so simplistic, but I to personalize the players. So I'm not skewing my delivery of a story toward any demographic whatsoever. You know, I find it my responsibility to do justice to the subjects that we're covering. If somebody gets in contention, then they're going to be on our air that weekend. I got to make sure people know who they are. I like to build up stars personally. I don't like tearing people down. That's just the way I'm, that's just in my DNA. And um, I, I mean, like I've never been asked that before. Like, what demographic are you televising to? I, I'm, I'm there to tell a story. By the way, storytelling is evergreen. It's going to be a hundred years from now. Important how somebody presents a golf or a football broadcast. It's not in my world. It's not about numbers. I, I would say this about broadcasting the NFL with Tony or college basketball with Raft and Grant. It's not about numbers. The guy averages 16 points, eight rebounds. Again, who cares? The guy is 6'8", 250 pounds. Who cares? Uh, you know, sometimes if it's, if it's jaw-dropping distance averages and things like that, but a lot of the numbers and technology are on the screen in graphic form. And you look at the innovations in golf television that all of us have done in recent years. Uh, Shot Tracer, for example, which was invented by CBS, by the way. Okay, it, we, we were the first to ever have it, and I can't tell you the year, probably was, uh, I, I don't know, I guess the year, but it, it debuted at Torrey Pines a number of years ago. And all the TrackMan type stuff that you see with the Pro Tracer and the other graphics that you see integrated through um, ShotLink is what I'm trying to come up with. We have plenty of numbers. We, we can crunch the numbers, and I'm not a big numbers guy. I'm a heartbeat guy. And, you know, I think 
that gets filled in. If you want the data, you can get that from all kinds of sources on our air. But did you watch, Chris, did you watch any of the rewinds during the 13-week absence? Did you go back and look at any of the shows or like Masters Week? Did you go back and look at any of the old shows that ESPN ran like oh, yeah. 86? And, yeah. did, did, I mean, could you not tell how far the industry has come? I said there's probably no place other than Augusta. Augusta has to be the place that has benefited the most from high-definition television of any one location in no sports. Mm-hmm. But I was talking more about technology sure yeah oh it's completely different yeah it's um the way it works with the viewers i think is once you've kind of introduced some of this stuff it becomes almost compulsory right And you don't even it now it's super hard to go back and watch shots without without shot tracer especially when it's live right when you when you're watching a replay of something you at least kind of know something about where a ball is going but gosh the shot tracer innovation has been yeah I, now i don't even think well, about it because there's so much shot tracer on the broadcast right. it's not it's something that has been addressed and it, it clearly there was a call from golf fans that we need a lot of shot tracer mm-hmm. and now almost never do we get a shot that doesn't have it that needs it no there's going to be a lot of shots where you don't have it what you're saying is a crucial shot right because exactly. y- yeah but ken agard was our director of operations and he was always on the cutting edge of all this kind of technology. And he's the guy that brought us to us. And I can remember the first time I went on the air, it took like one look at it to say, oh, my gosh, this, this is a game changer here. This is going to be exactly what your point is. Like, I need more of that. I got to have it's like going back and looking at an old football broadcast without the first down line. How did we do that? You know, like all of a sudden it gets, you know, a yellow line goes out. That's what they need to get to the first it's changed the way you watch a football game and golf has come a long way, a long way. And, you know, I've had a seat for all this. I've been fortunate enough to start really in my mid twenties and be taught so much about the industry from the great Frank Trichinian. God love him. He was just an amazing man to work for. But those shows that Frank was producing back then versus now, I mean, it's a world of difference. It's so much more complicated. You know, it wasn't so much of this technology was not around in Frank's time. Mm -hmm. On your note there about the storytelling, I promise I don't want to keep coming back to commercials, but I want to ask, do you find it more challenging to build that story because of the interruptions and the starts and stops and all the places that you need to go? Do you feel hamstrung in that regard at times? Well, you do feel like you have to make quicker work of it. You can't ever really linger on anything too long because you have commitments. That's what you're saying. Sure to personalize the player and to jump around. Actually, uh, let me let me say this is where it starts. You go to commercial, and let's say you're away for two and a half minutes. How many important golf shots do you think were struck in those two and a half minutes? I mean, it's just a random guess. It depends on the tournament. But I would say on average, there have been six or seven or eight shots minimum. But the Thursday and Friday is a different animal. you got so many people on the golf course. But let's say on a Saturday or Sunday, there, there are at least you know, six to 10 shots that happen while you're away. Now you come back from commercial and you have a player alive, ready to hit another shot. You know, you still have to make up for what happened while you're away. Right. So the rhythm and timing of it, it's a massive cross. Well, let's call it a Rubik's cube, trying to figure out how to slot in live. Let me go back because I have to get this and this happened while we're away. Back to maybe another live shot, back to two tape shots. This was a moment ago over here. I mean, it is an incredible challenge to try to get that. And then they all face it. Lance faces it, and 
so does Tommy Roy and Mark Loomis. And I respect all those guys. Mm-hmm. And they all know that. They're all friends of mine. That's it, what it, I asked Tommy so they, Roy once. I just said, you know, do yeah. you take a take a deep breath when you go to commercial? He looked at me like I had three heads. Like, no, like that's the hardest part when we go to commercial. We're still working. <laughs> yeah. They're still working. Yeah. They're still recording and trying to get a sense of timing of how they're going to come out of this and then work all this stuff in to get caught up. And maybe just when you get caught up, you have to go to another commercial again. Mm-hmm. You know, this is one thing about limited commercial operation. Like the Masters has, obviously, as we all know, fewer breaks. That's easier to do. Yeah. Because you're not backed up. It, it, there's a continuity to the Masters coverage. That's that's kind of my point is where I, it's a noticeable difference, you know, when the U.S. Open goes to the last hour of coverage or whatever that's commercial free sure. and then the, the late the dial back commercial interruption at the Masters. It's and, and the reason I'm, I'm kind of tying the demographic question in with that is I'm 33, I think. Um our generation's mm-hmm. kind of coming up in this Netflix era where we don't watch we don't watch anything with commercials anymore. So I grew up, you know, when I was a kid, we watched, you know, Seinfeld and Friends with commercials, but we don't do that anymore. Now when we flip on right, I, I get it. it, Trust it me. That's where that's why I was asking if you foresaw a way to change it, whether that was that's, you know, obviously that's something that I wish I could fix and change and right. we all do, but you know, we also have CBS Viacom CBS is a publicly held company. Right. You know, we got to pay for it somewhere. So if you're going to, I mean, it's such a simple thing of economics. We buy the rights to the PGA Tour, and I, I don't even know the finances on that, but, you know, those new deals were just worked out. How are we going to recover the cost? Right. Are we going to do it for free? Nope. We're a publicly held company. You think our shareholders are going to take that? You're going to take a, whatever, hundreds of millions of dollars a loss because we're not going to show commercials? Do you guys do your podcast with no commercials? Nope. So and, why do you do them? Well, the reason I was asking was what was could change is the, where I'm coming from is, you know, soccer has figured out ways to, without oh. stopping play. Well, have, look at playing through. Yeah. Look at playing through. Or eye on the course. That's, that's, that's what we call it, eye on the course. I think that's a great step. I don't know what the return is to the sponsor on that, but I know we had on Sunday, I believe we had six, both Saturday and Sunday, six of our breaks were eye on the course. Mm-hmm. Does that does that help you? I mean, it helps me when I'm a viewer at home and I'm able to, to still see what's going on in the course. It also, you know, certainly helps the truck as well because, you know, in, in theory, you've already watched it. Right. But it's a, it's a simple thing of economics. You guys, I don't know what your expenses are, your operations are. You guys do some traveling around. I mean, you have sponsors, right? You have sponsors to cover your expenses and make a living. And it's a much bigger picture here when you're talking about the rights to whatever it might be. PGA Tour, the NFL, you know, I don't know how to solve it. I do think this eye on the course is a, is a great way to go. Maybe we get to the day, Chris, we're all 18 commercial breaks or whatever. I guess it's 18 commercial breaks. Maybe all of them are eye on the course. Uh, that's that's I mean, that, that's a dream for, for golf fans. But I'm going to give you – Hey, listen, I'm a fan too. Don't forget that. I know. I, I know, I know. Everything. I will say this too because I love our team. Uh, I'm in awe of our team, and I know virtually everyone that we work with on our team. They're friends of mine. In a lot of cases, I've worked with them for 35 years. We know each other's families, their kids, the whole thing, and I'm proud of them. I don't like them being portrayed like they don't know what they're doing. I mean, it's it's like the commercials or missing this or whatever the argument might be. Uh, But I want to say this. When we're not on the air with golf, and I mean this from the bottom of my heart, I pull for everybody in this business. 
Right. All of them. Because our sport, other than guys like you who are diehards and me, you know, we're in some circles, we're considered like a niche sport. We're not the NFL. We're not the NBA. We're not Major League Baseball. You know, the ratings support that. I mean, we know who's watching every week, and golf's able to sustain itself with its audience, its core, ardent followers. But I would love to see the numbers get bigger. I think the message from this game is fantastic. The sport does so much for so many people in philanthropy and on and on and on. And I think there's room for it to grow. And I hope that we can be a part of that movement. And now is a crucial time. Right. We're coming out of this lockdown, people dying to watch anything. And I really think that golf has a chance to gain some following. I know I'm circling back here a little bit, but this is why, and I think there's more uh, willingness to like consider audio on the golf course. Mm-hmm. Like the miking of the players, that might be a great idea, and it might not be as great as you think. Now, do you know what I mean by that? Oh, yeah. I, I think it's, there's a lot of challenges that come with it, and speaking to some of the producers about it, about how you have to submix all the audio and all the things that come with it. It's not a... That's not the problem. Well, That's not the problem. Yeah. The problem is the equipment they have. Well, two things. The, the problem is, let's take Adam Hadwin, great guy, and I didn't realize that I guess he had told someone that he would be willing to do that. Good for him. And he's going to do it here. And he, was, he stepped up and did our uh, Inside the Ropes. Well, you have to have, especially where we are right now, with not the same amount of manpower that we normally have, if you're going to have a guy mic'd up, you're going to feel an obligation to keep going back to that. So you have to have a min- minimum of two cameras on that player. Mm-hmm. Now, why would you need two cameras? Well, you need one to be next to the player, let's say, when he hits a fairway shot, and you need somebody to, to be a catcher. You know what I mean by that? Someone that's going to actually follow the ball and watch it land. So, you you know, it comes down to the decision. Are you going to move two people to some point on the golf course? And maybe take that away from one of your feature groups or one of uh, uh, somebody that's in contention if this was happening over the weekend. So it's a little tricky. And do you feel obligated to justify having that mic on that player and maybe be taking shots away at the same time from some players that are more deserving that are in contention? So it's a little tricky. That's sure. why I think this inside the ropes audio that we had, I think it has a world of potential. I really do. I'm really excited about it, Chris. Uh, we need the players. You may have heard me a little bit of an outcry about it, but I love these guys out here on this tour, and I, I have a deep respect for what they're doing. But we need their help. They needed to hear it. Yep. That I, we're I, trying to help. It's not personally helping right. me. I'm I'm trying to help the viewer, which is going to help, and you know, in the end, it's going to help the tour get more popular. It's going to help their own personal brands, and more importantly, overall, the PGA Tour brand. Let's get to know. Let's see what they look like and sound like, and see him smile or whatever the case might be. Just answer a question. Walk up to an unmanned camera with a boom mic drop and walk in and whatever the question of the day is from inside the ropes during the heat of competition, my, I thought it would be you know, 20 seconds. Most of them were like 8 to 10 seconds. Fine. Great. You know, but imagine if we had a point, if this grows and it's going to grow, where you get to a point where you have, and you can justify it as a producer on the show, 25 to 30 guys you hear sound from in one day in a final round. Well, that to me could be even better than having players mic'd, you know, and you can put them in packages. You can go to break with, which we did last week. Our guys put five guys together on Saturday, five guys together on Sunday and a two man pack with Furick and Poulter on Sunday. 
I think that can breathe a lot of life into this. And we get to know, for the guy at home, we get to know these players a little bit better. I'm, I'm really excited about that. And this is just something that's, again, we at CBS trying to find ways to get better generationally, trying to, you know, a younger millennial audience, let them get to know who these guys are a little bit better, more likability. These are likable guys, Chris. You're around them a lot. You know, let's, you know, Andrew Landry, he wouldn't have been on right. last week if he wasn't on that. You know, he gets a chance to put a chance to go in. Sponsors get a little bit of a, uh, you know, on camera. You know, like, you know what 10 seconds of airtime is worth if you're buying a commercial? They ought to look at it that way. You know, we're trying to help them. We're not trying to take them out of their focus. There's no chit-chat, go over there and all the perfunctory, hey, how you doing? You playing all right? Good. Because, you know, I, I was a player. If I was a player, I wouldn't want to go over there and have to strike a conversation up with someone. That's why I thought it'd be best if it was unmanned when we were discussing this. Mm-hmm. Because you want a player to go over and feel like, okay, there's a question that's written down on a card on the ground. Okay, I'll look into the thing. I'll answer it, and I can move on. I don't have to, how's the family? By the way, say hello to so-and-so. You know, they can get <laughs> in and out without any of that kind of yeah. nonsense. What it did for me as a viewer was it, it brought my eyes to the screen, right? Sometimes I can get caught looking at my phone, but that and the post-round interviews that were straight on with the player, I, I, that yes. was, I was in on that. I thought that was, and, and the, to, yeah, to the your point. we ever did that. Yeah, to it your point about yeah. kind of steering it all together where everyone working towards making making entertainment entertainment product, and that's where you're you need here. the tour player's help on that. I, I'm, I'm with you 100%. Can I tell you, I, I haven't said this anywhere publicly, Chris, but not that it's that big a deal, but you're into it and so am I. I think we had seven players in that post-round setup. We didn't know if that was going to work. I couldn't see them on a, a preview monitor. Every time I kind of led to a guy, I was a little worried whether or not this was going to work. We had never done it before. So between, well, between the inside the ropes and those we interviewed after the round, maybe it was five and seven, we had 12 players on our air with sound on Sunday. I can tell you that's pro- not, and again, this is no pre-round sound. This is either inside the ropes or after they've just finished a round. It's got to be pretty close to a record to hear from 12 of the 67 players that made the cut. That's pretty good. Now, when we did the post-round thing, just again a small uh, little technical point here, because they were hearing me on a speaker, our audio team had to pop me down when they were answering a question, and I had to like skip the beat when they finished an answer for that to someone was over there would pot it back up. This was, again, short of personnel, trying something new. We had some glitches. There were some players that didn't hear us, but it worked out, and it was quick. You know, it was in and out. I think yes. that was one of your points you were making, Chris. You know, hey, we got Justin Rose real quick. Hey, Justin, what happened over on, you know, the putt on 18 that almost, I, we thought it was in. Did you think it was in? He answered it. Good luck. I know you're not out of it yet. Stick around. Thanks. And let's go back out to 17. You know, you could just get in and out. It didn't linger. It was snappy. And thought it, I thought it worked out well. I, I I agree with that and the, the nugget you got about with from Bryson too about it not quite being over that that was perfect too. But I think uh, I you know there's got to be some people screaming at their speakers saying you've got Jim Nance on here and you're going to badger him with coverage questions. I think we've properly no please go ahead and by the way if you need to do part two of this we can, <laughs> we can repeat this tomorrow. I don't care. yeah we could do that. It's important we answer this. Yeah okay. I think you've 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 uh, I think we've covered the coverage if you will and there's a, a lot of stuff other stuff I want to get to you. No get I, to, I the one thing I want to cover on the coverage okay. Because um, some some people portray it like, hey, CBS comes on the air 
they go to commercial, they come back, show one golf shot, and they go back to commercial, right? Yes, there's probably people out there that say that, yes. Okay, well, I, I didn't do a lot of research for this. I don't need it, but I did ask for, what does the length of a segment look like during the course of one of our shows? What what does it look like? So I have I have the breakdown of what, like, we did, uh, I've got Saturday at the Schwab. I have stuff from NBC. We all are the same. Basically, it's all comparable. Now, Saturday at the Schwab, okay, this is going to sound like a lot of minutiae here, so bear <laughs> with me, Chris. I'm here. Okay? Our first segment was 19 minutes and three seconds, and I'm going to speed it up. We went then 8.33, 10.26. Now, remember, you got 18 minutes per hour. It's in the contract. Mm-hmm. Okay. Then there was an eye on the course. 19, eight and a half, 10 and a half. Rounding. 414, 551, eye on the course. Five minutes, 859, 916, eye on the course. Do these sound like one shot segments to you? No, they definitely don't. Okay. I th- okay. 608, 610, 305, eye on the course. Now, why do you take a commercial? Like, you don't want to be cookie cutter, right? I mean, you wouldn't want to say, you know what? It's been. Seven minutes, I've got to average this out. It's seven minutes, take a commercial. Or you might have some guys tee off on a par five and know they've got the long walk, and these are the guys that are maybe leading the tournament, and this would be a good time to take a break. So you have a shorter second. But, you know, we're not talking about one shot here. 523, 332, 423. Here's 152. That was our shortest segment. It was probably in the last start of the last hour. 510, 1108, 724. 738 and 1014, 10 minutes and 14 seconds. That's reality. I'm just dealing with reality here and not perception or not trying to push something that isn't truth. That's important to me that we just really tell people, you know, what it is. Now, you can say, well, that's, you know, that's the Schwab, but what about like the Genesis? I, you know, I have that in front of me. You know, you probably don't want a bunch of numbers again, but it's, you know, it's just, <laughs> I'll just see how much thing. homework you did. It's <laughs> impressive. No, I mean, it's, you know, it's, it, it's one program here that, that, that I got, but you know, you look at, and, and, and I'm not going to try to spit out what I've got here for the Honda or the world golf championship, but it's all similar. And they do a fantastic job. These guys that are in these chairs, figuring out the timing and the rhythm of it and how to do it. It's not easy. It's not easy. And I have great regard for all of them. And I especially do for the guy that I've had the pleasure of working with for 35 years, and that's Lance. Yeah, I think, you know, in regards to that, there's definitely times when people will notice an especially short segment and maybe not be watching the whole day. Yeah, it's going to happen. Maybe not be watching the whole day, not timing stuff out and not knowing. I think a lot of people, when you you get a 19-minute segment, like you you talked about at the start there, you don't notice that you Mm -hmm. got that, right? But you notice it when there's, like, close commercials back-to-back. And and. I think we've documented to this point that it's, you know, the the commercial allotment is the exact same it's across the, same, the networks. Yeah, the so. exact same throughout. Well, CBS is not hitting you over the head right. with more commercials than anyone else's. It's just the reality of it. Well, on that note, I would like to move on mm-hmm. to some other topics because sure. uh, you've uh, had a wild career in covering sports and <laughs> many, many, uh, I gosh, I, I got a lot to ask you about. But first, I want to go to last mm-hmm. year's Masters. I want to know what you're what you're thinking coming down the stretch because we're all sitting here like this. This moment's just it's like it's too big. It's too big to like 
comprehend. <laughs> and I, I don't mean this in saying, you know, I got a kind of separate question on how you come up with your calls. And I know that's one you've been asked a lot, but how do you yeah. prepare yourself for what's about to happen at the end of that tournament compared to how you've prepared yourself in previous years? And I mean, separate from like your actual call before the putt. I prepare for it the same way I do every year. I really do. Same way I'm preparing for this weekend from the RBC. I find out who the leaders are, who I expect to be in our coverage. Of course, that starts to figure itself out by Saturday and Sunday. And then I start to figure out what it is I want to say. Hopefully, some of it's fresh information. You know, it's not um, PGA Tour media guide information. It's sometimes, though, you do have to, you know, stay true to, you mentioned it earlier, there's people sometimes coming in. Do you dumb it down a little bit for people that are the fringe fans? And yes, you know, you have to be able to give a player's profile of what their record is and what their highlights are. But fresh information is always key. Um, you, you take this past weekend, Harold Varner was such an amazing story and how he did it, how he hit 18 greens on Thursday and then bounced back on Friday after making an opening triple. And on Sunday, if he was coming down the stretch and going to win that tournament, I think we were really ready to tell what would have been one of the most remarkable stories that you know we could ever tell given the time and the moment and i admire him so much we talked to his dad i say we tommy spencer's been my information guy for over 25 years and you know, he was home in philadelphia unable to travel there again trying to limit the number of people that were traveling and exposed and uh, he, he was not on site but he talked to harold's dad and, and i had a lot of history of how Mr. Varner had taught him the game and where he had worked his whole life. He's a, uh, worked for a car dealership and been a car salesman now for 40 years. And, you know, none of this gets on the air. Uh, we talked to his coach. I talked to, we, we talked to Tommy, talked to Ron Green uh, Jr. in Charlotte, who, you know, knew Harold well enough on some local stories about what he's done as far as charity and giving back with his foundation. And now there'll be another time to tell that story, all those stories. Mm -hmm. But that's the way we approach it every week. Yeah, I, I've kind of forgotten what your question well, was. Well, I was <laughs> I was going to say specific <laughs> to capturing Tiger, and the way you oh, said gotcha. it was yeah, the way yeah, you yeah. said it was was great. It just you know a lot of people never thought this would happen again, but here it yeah. is. But like, how do you you know? There's so much built up to that moment that like you exactly like you said. But how do you prepare yourself to you know take that in as a viewer? I could not control like my emotions during it. Like I just I was like, how how is this happening? We were all freaking well, out here. How do you no, do I that? was freaking out. Yeah. I was freaking out. <laughs> I hope okay. so. It was, it was 9 o'clock in the morning when we came on the air. I got there at, whatever, maybe 6. You know, people kind of forget now this was the first ever Masters to go that early. And it ended. We signed off from the, from the cabin at 2.48 was the time. I used to say this, and I haven't said it in a long time, but I think it still holds true. When I'm broadcasting golf, yeah, there's a lot of information floating around in my head. But if you saw me in the football booth, I've got all these what would you call them, spotting boards with color-coded information and stories and lined up in a certain order for every man that dresses for those games. It's complicated. I work on that board all week long. Every play-by-play -play broadcaster does the same thing, and they have their own unique way of doing it. Basketball, the same thing. But when it's golf, I kind of like to go through, before the day begins, a few thoughts in my head, where we're going, and then I kind of just like to have it in my head. I don't have most of the time, any notes. Now, there's a lot of paper. You saw some desks last week. Had billboards. One time I picked up the wrong billboard, and, you know, somebody got a, a double run on the air. That's the first time it's ever happened for me last week. And um, 
But as far as like information on the players, a, a lot of it's in my head and I've gone through it before it starts. And then I want to broadcast as a fan. I like to broadcast from my heart. Now, not to sound syrupy here, which, you know, a lot of people think I go over the top on that, but that's just who I am. Sorry. It's in my DNA. Um, you know, I get emotional and nostalgic and sentimental about things. And that's who I am. Some people don't like it. Others do. That's just the way, you know, I'm wired. But when Tiger was coming down the stretch, yeah, the moment was gigantic. And I think it's really key, too, to let the moment have some air. You're talking about audio. And your best to be able to pick up on some of that player caddy back and forth. But what really me again i'm ad living all of us are we're ad living through all of this but when he got to his tee shot at 18 and you saw that he was a little bit blocked you saw him discussing you could hear him discussing with joe what he wanted to do and then steve milton our director cut to a shot of the family behind the green why well, i had asked on saturday inside of tiger's camp was anybody going to be there were the kids going to be there on sunday because we found out later sam had a soccer game i guess they lost in the semifinals or something, and they ended up coming in. But I didn't know it. I did not know they were going to be there. But leave it to Steve Milton, who's just exceptional in what he does, our director, and someone framed up the shot for him, and there they stood behind the 18th screen. Well, the minute I saw that, I knew as long as he makes five, we're going to have one of the greatest scenes ever in the game. I mean, they're standing right where his father did mm-hmm. all those years before. 22 years earlier. And I first thought just about the emotion of it, if he can close the deal. And I made a comparison, I believe it was at that point, right before he hit his second shot, that if he wins this, we're going to see a side to Tiger, and I'm paraphrasing, um, like what we saw in 2006 at Hoylake, which was his first major win after his dad had died on May the 3rd, 2006. So here he was in July melted in the arms of Steve Williams, and I just, I'll never forget that scene. And I wasn't trying to foreshadow anything. It's just what my heart told me to go with, that this is going to be emotional. And by the way, personally, I thought it was just fantastic to see that the family was there and and so eager to see him close the deal, and you could see the excitement and nervousness on their faces. And um, he puts out. And, uh, oh, as he's walking up 18, he still, you know, he still had a tricky third to play, and he played safely up against the ridge. I just, the word glory kept floating around in my head. There was a minute-by-minute kind of piece in Golf Digest about this, so I don't mean for these great golf fans that you have repeating everything, but I just thought of the word glory because I thought of it more of a sense of glory in his life, his full glory of coming back. His kids are there. The scene I, I expected was going to be, and it was, proved to be, and it was a return. I didn't want to call it a comeback. I, did, I didn't know. I, how do you say it? I didn't have, again, anything written down. Putt went in the hole, and I said, either the return to glory or a return to glory, one of those two, and didn't say anything for a couple more minutes because there was no way I was going to insert myself over that scene. Now, full disclosure, I was not sitting in the 18th tower when that moment happened. I was down in the cabin. I already broken off and gone to the cabin. I was working off a headset and a, like a 12-inch monitor watching this. I mean, tiny little monitor. It's the size of a little bigger than a viewfinder for these cameras. <laughs> and 
Nick's in the tower at 18. Lance in the, in the compound is two-tenths of a mile away from me, maybe a quarter of a mile away from where I am. So we're in all these different places. I happened to hit the talkback switch to, to Lance as soon as I said, return to glory, the return to glory. And I said, Lance, just so you know, so that Nick doesn't think my mic's gone down or that my, you know, anything he's expecting for me to, to say over this, just let him know I'm saying nothing. And it's going to be a long time before I do. And I wasn't trying to tell Nick not to say anything. I was just wanting him to know that I was going to lay out. And I'm sure he figured out that that was the right thing to do as well. And, and I'm glad we all made that decision because we would have done nothing but sully one of the great scenes in the history of the sport. Forget the sport, transcend the sport. One of the great scenes you'll ever see in any any live sports competition. And like I said, it played out for, I believe, more than two minutes. And was I touched? Was I bouncing off the walls like you were at home? Absolutely, I was. And that moment just tugged at the heartstrings, I think, for golf fans, at least for me personally. I, I felt like I rooted for a robot playing golf up until 2009. And then I felt mm-hmm. like I was rooting for a human near the end. And that that kind of came through in that moment. That's what really, really hit people. And what you guys rebroadcasted previous rounds of the Masters, which was fantastic, by the way. You had Phil Mickelson on. He was Phil. He was an entertainer through the whole interview. He was the whole Saturday show, Chris, yes. Yes. And he did some play-by-play with me on the what would have been the Saturday this year, the Masters. He did a great job. Right. And, and then, he's going to make he's gonna make someone a great analyst someday yeah, when he, he decides is. to do it. Yep. And then Tiger, you had that on the Sunday, and he, I, I, I thought he was a bit reserved at the until the end. So I have a two-part question right. here. Do you think he was hesitant to give away any of his insight that he's kind of picked up on on Augusta? over the years until he's done playing. And on the second end, did you have any idea that at the end of that, he was going to open up the way that he did? Well, I, I haven't talked to anybody about it. So you're picking up on some vibes that I had too. So we taped maybe three or four segments, which those segments included cutting around to other players. We just took the broadcast feed. We kept the, the presence, the audio that was on site was still there. We took out the, commentary and in turn tiger and i called the action again as if we were a broadcast duo and i mean i think he did a very good job but he really got good when we got to 16 and two things happened when we started that segment at 16 one was i happened to ask him because if you remember the t-shirt i know you do just for um, uh, our, our listeners you know he almost spun it off the hill and made hole in one very nearly and i happened to ask him how many holes in one does he have in his career? I knew the answer to it because I can remember there's a kind of a to-do about it when he had made one in the fall of 18, I believe it was, playing a practice round out in the desert with Freddie. But I wanted to hear him say it. And he said that he had made 19 aces up until 2000. But from 2000 until 2020, he's made one. In the best years of his legendary career, he's made one. That didn't come in competition. That came in that practice round with Brett. And I think a lot of people really got into it. And I think Tiger got in that moment. But when we were taping that segment with all that was going on at 16 and the replay sequence and everything, remember, I'm working on Zoom at my home. My four-year-old little boy, Jameson, came into my office <laughs> right in the middle of it. And I didn't even see him. I could. I was looking at Tiger on the Zoom, and all of a sudden I saw Tiger really smiling. I'm wondering, what's he smiling about? And all of a sudden I felt Jameson tap me on my left elbow, 
And I said, Jameson, what in the world are you doing here? I knew, of course, the segment had just come to a halt. And he said, Daddy, I just wanted to say hello to Tiger. Wow. So I put one of those little AirPods in, and he said, hi, Tiger. And he said, hi. And uh, Courtney, my wife, came in and took him away. Jameson was very happy. And you know what? It kind of like relaxed Tiger, and we went back and did the segment over again. It just kind of like broke the ice, this little moment of, of uh, you know, child play coming in and stopping the, the recording and we did it over in the, in the segment was superb. And it was really good. He knew the path I was going to go down. I was going to go right back and ask him about the career aces and everything. And that was the last, I believe the last segment until the segment at the end where he got, you know, semi-emotional. Didn't you think? Oh, for sure. I mean, I, I yeah. he, he teared up and as a viewer, I just had never heard him go. Yeah. Th- I never seen him speak consecutively on a topic like that. I mean, it was a couple minutes that he talked about, you know, not being able to get out of bed or, you know, what he's talking about. Joe, I never knew that about LaCava really helping him like yeah. that. And I just, yeah. I just thought, you know, I was, I was kind of, I was tuned in watching it. And then I just perked up as to, whoa, there is like a, a moment here for like golf history is being documented. And I thought that was, uh, I thought that it was, was really cool. cool yeah. to do. It was you know, I'm really appreciative that he got into it so much. And, uh, it was, it was nice to see the reaction. And I think it was good for Tiger to see how much people enjoyed him sharing those thoughts that we felt. And, and it was just, there's something about it that we needed to know that he felt that. No, I, gosh, you know, he can sometimes not let us in, mm-hmm. but didn't you feel that? Oh yeah. I mean, what was that like hugging your, your children back there? In essence, what we're saying. I mean, it moved me as a dad. I mean, my gosh, to juxtapose Tiger being the son, his father there in 97, and 22 years later, you know, he's the father hugging the son. I mean, it's rich. It's some heavy stuff. It doesn't take stuff that heavy to get me, you know, kind of teared up. But it was nice to know that it it, it did for Tiger, too. Well, even, you know, it's been well documented that he perks up, you know, about when people ask him about his kids and stuff like that. Like he's, that's the topic that he'll, you know, expand on. He just, ever since he became a dad, like that, that that's been pretty well, well documented. So when he's like, even when he's explaining how he was shielding Sam away from the camera, cause she doesn't like the limelight that much. I just was like, wow, that's just a, that's a cool little mm-hmm. tiny little nugget, but I have a yes, question and it's one thing I've kind of, uh, I would have admitted to have teased you about over the years, but I'm always so impressed as how you know so many family members' names of the players that you're covering. How, does somebody gather that for you? Do you do all that? And I, I have to say, I can't believe it. For as much work as you've done on people's names, we were in the Dunvegan a couple of years ago, and your picture's up on the wall there, and your name's spelled wrong. I had to laugh at that when I saw that. Oh, is that right? <laughs> well, you know, I'm pretty good about names. And uh, I've been in the Dunvegan one time. It's a couple from Texas that owned it probably the time you were there, and their names were Jack and Sheila. Mm-hmm. Now, you, you don't sound like you can confirm that. Well, it is, but, they sold it, but they uh, did own it. Okay, then, they yes. did sell yes. it. I know they I know they sold it. And it's spearheaded by a group out of Canada that bought it, but they ran it, and I just remember people's names. Now, I'm not 100%, but God bless me with a, with a very good memory, and I'm, I'm grateful for that. And you know, the um, paradox of all this is, is my dad, as we're coming up on Father's Day this weekend, my, my dad's life was taken uh, by, by Alzheimer's, where he lost his memory. 
and I was as close as any father and son could ever be. And, um, you know, I'll be thinking about him uh, for sure a bunch coming up on Sunday. And, um, you know, his memory failed him, and, and this disease overtook his life starting at the age of 66, and he, he died in, um, at the age of 79. And I always think about that. People that know me always say, how do you remember these names? I know I've, I've gotten, again, I was blessed with a pretty good memory. Not photographic, nothing like that. But when I meet someone, I try to pay attention and look somebody in the eye and give them a respect and try to remember them. That's as simple as it gets. Now, family names, and stuff, it depends on the player. Mm-hmm. You know, some of these players I know really well, and I know their families. We, we travel in small circles out here. I've been doing 15 to 20 weeks a year for 35 years. So do I know Brant and Mandy Snedeker and their children, Austin and Lily? Yes, I do. And, you know, uh, our wives are close. And Brant's a good friend of mine. Do I know, you know, go on and on and on. Do right. I know Phil and Amy, you know, you know, r- really, really well. And, you know, do, do, do I know all the children, Amanda, Sophia, and Evan? Of course I do. You know, they've been in my home. I've been in theirs. So it's not the case with everybody. But. You know, you talk about preparation and what generation am I speaking to? Who can't relate to a family standing behind the 72nd green as someone's about to win a tournament and you see all that love and emotion on people's faces? And, you know, it's nice to be able to identify them. I'm not trying to show off that I know their names or I may know them because I've run into them a number of times through the years. I think they deserve to be recognized if they're in the frame. It's as, it's as simple as that. Right. And I will say this, that moment when people putt out or they're playing the 18th and they're about to win, I masqueraded as a golfer as a kid. <laughs> my playing ability has been like one of the great overrated things I've ever been around in my life. Um, I said masqueraded. I was on the Houston golf team, but I shouldn't have been, to be honest. I think the coach took a, a shining to me, saw a gold-minded person who was really driven to try to, to try to do something good. And I think he wanted to be around the golf team to be, in his mind, maybe a positive influence on people. And how he deduced that, I don't know. But I was never a threat to be a player of any consequence at Houston. Now, having said that, growing up as a kid and playing in junior tournaments and high school tournaments and trying to get better and then being around great players at the University of Houston, did I stand and grind over every five-footer and play in my mind uh, an announcer soundtrack describing this and telling the story of how much this moment meant to me, as you imagine, you know, in your head, you put yourself on that spot, trying to put a little quasi pressure on yourself to see if you can live up to that moment. You know, this is to win whatever the tournament is, a master's right here. Yeah, I did that all the time. But, you know, I made the determination a long time ago. Man, I, I, dream, I would dream so hard that if I ever got in the position to be the guy that was going to document that story at the end, these players especially in our sport, they've gone through so much, particularly first-time winners or a first-time major winner. To get to that point, man, the number of people who have been involved in that process, forget just swing coaches and things like that. Sure, they're worth mentioning. But how about, you know, Tiger, I think, mentioned about his mom, you know, dropping him off and driving him to tournaments. Think about all the people that gave him the ability to play somewhere or gave him a helping hand the family of support and a sport that is so downright lonely sometimes, particularly when you don't have it and you're failing and you have the doubt creep in your mind. The point of it is I always feel like it's really important 
to do justice to that moment to that player as I would want someone to do that for me. If I was ever good enough to win anything, another one than winning a high school tournament or two, I didn't do anything. But if I had the talent and skill level, I, I would want somebody up there to really like be able to tell that story that is an expression of the travels it took, the battles it took, the support it took for me to have that moment. And that's how I approach it. Nope, that that definitely makes sense. I uh, you touched on Sunday on on University of Houston, and uh, I mm-hmm. promise I won't take up too much more of your time. But your uh, your relationship with Fred Couples has been pretty well documented. College roommates at Houston. But the question I have is this: in in doing some research and reading, when you were working at I believe a Houston TV station, you had brought equipment back to your dorm room or suite, and you were messing around, and you mm-hmm. filmed a mock Butler cabin ceremony. The question I have is, whatever whatever happened to that footage? Is it is it long gone? Does it exist? No, it's not footage. It was into an audio cassette deck. Okay. You know, does it, it exist you still? Remember, it, you got to remember. My mom claims it's still up in her attic in Houston. She's eighty nine years old, still going. She claims she's got it in a shoebox, and I think she does. You got to find that <laughs> uh, because when she moved into this house, and well, after my father unfortunately was really failing, we we try to give her a, a new uh, way of of life and keep things positive we needed to get her out of the the older home and get her into a smaller place and get a fresh start for her and she claimed she saw it but it was an audio cassette that it was on you got to realize when we were in college you didn't have recording devices on your phone Hmm. and i was working for a radio station anyway at the time i was working for ktrh radio in houston and yes we used to sit in our dorm room and i want to give some props to my guy blaine McAllister because blaine and I don't know if you guys, your history on this stuff goes back that far, but Blaine won five tour events, and I'm darn proud of him. Uh, he came out of Fort Stockton, Texas, didn't even have grass greens. He had sand greens, showed up at the University of Houston, was recruited, got a half scholarship, and made himself into a, a, a really great player with a long career on the tour. Uh, so it was Blaine and Freddie and a guy named John Horn, H-O-R-N-E, and John was on the tour in, I believe, 87 and 88. So all three guys that I lived with in school made the PGA Tour. And they were completely, completely obsessed with the idea of being professional golfers. And I was you know, hopelessly in love with the idea of being a guy that was going to be broadcasting golf tournaments. That was where my passion was. And it was, hey, it was obsessive. I mean, it was obsessive compulsive disorder on my part. No question as a kid try to figure out how to one day get there i mean it just i, I just couldn't stop thinking about it and i think they were in their own ways the same way and I, I will say this we all got to do what we wanted to do they all made the tour freddie you know made the hall of fame i got to be his presenter and i love those guys they're, they're brothers to me my amigos as we call our group and our fundraising efforts have been through the years we called the uh, the amigos but times are different culture's different the way people interact is different. I'm not saying it's better or worse, but there was so much positivity around that dorm suite. Like, if you made some outrageous comment, like, you know, one day I, I'm going to work for CBS. That was my goal. I'm not. I'm not just making this up. Like, sounds like good copy and revisionist history. Now, my guys all know, and they would tell you that I dreamt of working for CBS one day. I wanted to broadcast the Masters, and I like the way CBS broadcasts the NFL too. So I love that network. And they, at the same time, they would openly tell you about how much they want to be pro golfers. And you know what? Nobody laughed. Yeah. Nobody threw it back in my face and, and 
got snarky about it or, yeah, yeah, you're going to do that and I'm going to fly to the moon. You know, there was none of that. It was like, I believe it. And I think there was some really good karma and, and something to be said for the fact that the people that you cared about, your brothers, um, were all looking at you, telling you this can happen. It helped me. Uh, and I, I hope in, a, in some small way it, it helped them too. Well, I'm sure there's a, a lot of details of how your how your career came together, and maybe we can we can cover that in a, in a future episode. But I want to know kind of what what day to day life is like for you, because I would consider you to be the most recognizable broadcaster in the country, especially just considering how many different sports you touch and do. I mean, if you are a sports fan in this country, they've watched a game that you have called. So, what what is day to day life for you when you go out to dinner, when you are at an airport, when you do normal day to day stuff? Is it Kind of compare that to, I don't, I don't know what you could compare it to, but what's it like when you go out? In other words, do people come over and say hello? Yeah, or, that uh, kind of stuff. Like, yeah, do you feel well, comfortable you know, I, going out and stuff? Is, yes, is also, I love people. Yeah. I love people. So if somebody's going to come over and say hello, you know, I'm going to treat them with respect, and they're going to be met with a smile. Uh, of course, I live in Pebble Beach, which was something that I first started to kind of hold on to this dream when Frank Trakinian first took me to Pebble in 1986. I'd been there years earlier. My parents took me on some weekend trips down to Carmel and Pebble. We lived in the East Bay area at that time. So I was fully smitten and in love with Pebble Beach. And then I came back uh, under uh, CBS's watch and I thought, man, there's something about this place that feels downright spiritual. And I love the vibe. And people are happy here. People are really happy when they come to Pebble Beach. Obviously, the area depends so much on tourism. And it's such a bucket list thing, Chris, for people to come out there that when they come, like, it's just like everything feels good. And that's, that's what it was like for me all those years coming as a broadcaster. I, I wanted that. It was that, whatever that drug was of the feeling of being at Pebble Beach and your own sensory overload. You're connected with nature. It feels great. It smells great. You know, the ocean spray and the pine trees and cypress and, trees and it's just there's um you don't have anybody there that's got rage going on in their lives they're they're completing a bucket list thing so when we go out to dinner there you know choosing to live there i knew i was going to get more of that Mm -hmm. because these are golfers these are people that follow you guys these are people that follow the golf on tv they're in on this sport and darn it um you know i'm appreciative that they we're excited to come to Pebble Beach, and they can see, in some cases, people are excited about coming over and asking if they can take a picture. And that happens, you know, being there, it happens pretty frequently. So I'm honored that people are nice to me. Uh, I really am. You know, I've seen some of the best of all time, Chris, of how uh, they interacted with the public. And uh, I, I'm pleased. Triple hedge and qualifiers on this, I'm not putting myself in their category, okay? I'm just saying I was an observer. Sure. So I saw how people did it right. You know, in the political realm, I've been around enough times to being very fortunate. You know, some people that have served the highest office in this country, including both President Bush's and President Clinton. And I've played with all of them. President Bush, 41, of course, has been gone now for a year and a half. Uh, but President Clinton's a friend. And I play golf with him more than once. And President Bush, 43, I played golf with. And Arnold Palmer, I played a lot of golf with. I mean, dozens of rounds with. 
And again, just watching the way that all these men interacted with their public, it was awesome. It was awesome. It gets me downright emotional thinking about it, mm-hmm. how nice these guys were to people. I mean, man, we need more of this in the world right now. We don't need hate speech and people, you know, trying to find reasons to get you, gotcha, whatever, and shoot you down. We need to love more. We need more respect and empathy for people. But you take take Arnold. It was amazing. The love that poured out of that guy's heart, and I'm just standing off to the side and watching it. He never did anything other than treat people with great respect and love and kindness. That's a big thing to take on when you're as big as those guys. Again, right. I'm triple qualifier over here. I, you're qualified. I'm just an observer <laughs> here. But I watched how they did it, and, man, in my little world as being a sports broadcaster, somebody's going to come over and want to say hello to me. I mean, it's my nature, I believe, anyway. Um, my, my, my mom and dad are both that way. But, look, I'm a father. The proudest thing in my life is to be a dad. I've got three children, three amazing children. You know, just take today. I'm in early at Hilton Head. We've done a lot of walking around. We picked up some rental bikes. We went down to the beach twice. By the way, social distancing the whole way, Chris. Got a boogie board and ran the kids out through the ocean on a boogie board. Rode the bikes around. You know, we're going to eat inside tonight. As Again, we're trying to follow all the safety protocols that CBS has enacted. I couldn't be happier to be a dad. It's a big balance, though, living where I live and trying to get out to do an event every week. Most of it primarily on the East Coast. There's a lot of travel. Mm-hmm. But, man, I'm, to, I'm always finding, trying to find every single way I can to maximize the number of hours and days that I have with my family. Well, I'm going to let you out on this. I can't have you on and not ask about who I would consider my favorite color commentator in sports and what it's like to work uh, with Tony Romo because – I'm a football fan. I don't, I'm not necessarily, you know, I don't follow any particular team, but I'll watch it. But I will actually seek out games that you guys are calling because of his ability to not predict what's going to happen, but tell you exactly as a viewer what to look for, what the hot routes are going to be, what the audibles are going to be, what he's reading. What is it, what has it done for you as a football commentator to have somebody like Romo at your side? Well, I've loved every minute of it. And I've got to tell you truthfully, I saw for years in advance that he was going to have the ability to do that just by television production meetings. Now, I know that might be lost on people. What's a television production meeting? But before the COVID and everything, and before Zoom became all the rage, you would go in early and you would meet with the home team all day Friday. You'd talk to the quarterback, the coordinators, the head coach, and three or four other players. And then Saturday, you'd do the same thing with the visiting team. And I've been doing the NFL a long time. But every time I had a Cowboy game, Tony would walk into the room and you'd say, holy smokes, does this guy have a personality? Can he break down the game for us? I couldn't take down notes in my mind fast enough. I would write down little key words because he was just giving me a million different things. But he also had this other thing called golf in his life. I said it earlier. People that love the game, we're, we're bonded. We're connected. And Tony and I had that connection. So what happens? There's a friendship there. And so much so that when I would come into town to do either the Colonial or the Nelson, I would check in with Tony. All right. So I might say, well, that's kind of strange. You're covering one of your subjects and whatever. It's innocuous. I want to come out and watch the golf and sit in the tower off to the side, pull up a chair. You're not going to go on the air. You can just watch it from the 18th. Tony used to live out there at Las Colinas on the other course. 
the Cottonwood Valley course, if you remember, they played two courses out of TPC in the old days. You remember that, Chris? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so he lived on the um, CV course, Cottonwood Valley. So we had a friendship. Going back to 2011, I was he actually got married on one of the weekends of the Byron Oaks, invited me to the wedding. 2012 uh, debuted a wine endeavor that I'm really proud of. Um, uh, and, and we had our grand opening, actually, at a steakhouse in Fort Worth. Fifty people came. I was going to donate money to the Nance National Alzheimer's Center. All of it, every ticket. And 100% of the money was going to go to the, to, the, to the Nance Center, named for my dad. Tony came over, bought a ticket. So through the years, he would go to Final Fours. I had a friendship. I had a chemistry. I had a bond of golf together. So now he has three of his last four years curtailed, cut short by injury. Well, we had this thing called, uh, you know, friendship. And he decided he wanted to explore football on TV. And all I can say is when you go into an on-air relationship and a guy's brain is working as fast and as insightful as Tony's, but you have that chemistry already in place, it's a good thing. And I've loved it. I mean, it has been a wonderful gift at this stage of my career to have Tony every single weekend is a blast. The preparation, the whole process, going out to the dinners, thinking about the game, not even talking about the game, talking about life, talking about our families, our kids are about the same age, our wives are close, we're good friends. It's greatness. And he's awesome. And he's going to have a terrific long run. And I look forward to having many years to go to still do it with him. All right. Well, that is, uh, we've taken up a lot of your time. Thank you so much, Jim, for, uh, for coming on. I've got two more pages of notes of questions to ask you for the next time you come on. <laughs> so, so, Let's uh, do it. will you invite me back? I, anytime, absolutely. Anytime. If you'll, Seriously, if you'll there's if you'll, a part two, let's do it later this summer before the PGA, before if, the first major. Would love okay. to, if we would okay. love to do one in person someday. And I really, I do appreciate you coming on and, uh, and, uh, engaging in this, in the conversation. So I enjoyed it. Thanks, Chris. All right. Cheers. Be the right club. Be the right club today. Yeah. That's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most. Expect anything 